Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 29, Episode 1. Coming up on the show, we've got the E.T. Plague Spheres of Death, waking up trapped in your own skull and accidentally setting your parents' house on fire with your kundalini energy. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. I honestly couldn't imagine any better way to bring us back for a new season than burning down someone's house with kundalini energy. You've got to start somewhere. It's 2023. <laughs> got to have a fresh new approach. <laughs> How was your break? It was all right. I, I got a head cold like a day after Christmas on Boxing Everyone's day. sick again. Everyone's sick. It's just, just going through, I don't know. This is a post-COVID world that we're living in where everyone just seems to get everything these days. Other than that, it was fine. I, I spent most of the break noodling with sound. I bought one of those UAD Apollo interfaces. Mm-hmm which gives you those beautiful like old Neve plugins that you run the microphone through. It was just super fun to play with that. And we're You were like of, a kid getting a Game Boy back yeah. in the 90s. I could see how you were playing with this And thing. we're thinking of introducing new hardware later on in the year for the show, but I was just kind of playing with it at home. And you might notice we've got a completely new sound for 2023. I like it. I really we had to change a few things, but I'm enjoying it so far. We've got a few. Actually, we've got some big plans. We won't reveal anything yet, but we've got some big plans for 2023. Huge plans for this year. Yeah. There's some big changes coming up. We just want to throw it out there. If anyone's on the market for a shipping container studio, <laughs> send us an email. I'm serious. I'm if serious. Any, yeah. If anyone. To, yeah. If you want to buy a, yeah. a studio in a shipping container, let us know because we are making some changes this year. How was your break? My break was fantastic. I actually started, of all things, I bought this cold brew nitrogen press thing, right, which I've never tried before. But unfortunately, uh, because I was drinking a whole heap of cold brew coffee the entire time, I didn't get much sleep. (laughs) I didn't get much sleep at all. So I actually had to weed myself off a couple of days before I came back to work. But now I'm feeling much better and I'm, I'm all ready to go. I never feel refreshed after the Christmas break. No, because we just suddenly wind down and then we're back into it. But that's okay. I felt really relaxed on the last three days. Yes. And then you have to come back to work. Yeah. So what have you got coming up on this show? Oh, well, we're back into it straight back straight into away. the search of finding stories. I'm going to be looking at this uh, new book from Eugene Dickerson, Touching the Source, it's called. Uh, a remarkable disclosure. It's it's like Raymond Moody-esque yeah. in, in his approach where... You mean like out-of-body kind of yeah, stuff? Yeah, he has these wild out-of-body experiences and he sounds like a, a, a total newbie to any kind of s- spiritual concepts. Like he has no idea what's going on. And what sets him on the path of what ultimately ramps up to some very strange spiritual experiences is the uh, British spiritual philosopher Neville Goddard. He starts watching Neville Goddard videos on YouTube. And I want to talk about that a little bit later because Goddard's such an interesting character. He became really popular in the 1950s and yeah, 60s. Where do we know him from? That name well, is quite familiar. He, I guess you could say, was one of the origins in the West of the whole idea of your thoughts create your reality. Oh, that's where, right. You know that kind of yes. new age trope? It's kind of a little bit uh, the secret. You know, yes. That, yeah. that, and yeah. a lot of this can be traced back to Goddard and his philosophy. But what I found specifically interesting about Goddard is he's one of these guys who said he had this secret master, this uh, strange, he called him like a black uh, Judaic Israelite rabbi. (laughs) He was some kind of black rabbi. Right. And this really mysterious guy who would uh, suddenly appear and and teach him all these wild things and then vanish into the night. So he's kind of like an ascended master. Is that It's like, and it's around this time. I mean, obviously he's much uh, later than Blavatsky and the Theosophists, but 
this is the question. Is Goddard just spinning this story inspired by the Theosophists? Is he just saying that, is he making up this idea that this strange master came and taught him these these spiritual philosophies in the middle of the night? Or is there some actual truth to this this character, this uh, master of his? And uh, through the research of Mitch Horowitz, we might actually track down the identity of this master. And it's connects in some very weird ways to kind of weird modern new age stuff. Oh, and he also uh, sets his parents' house on fire with his kundalini energy at some point. <laughs> so what, what have you got coming up? Well, uh, you may have noticed that Twitter and social media, or well, at least Twitter, has been quite different since Elon Musk has taken over. There's a lot of people that are coming back that have previously been suspended. Uh, and with that, of course, you know whether you like it or not, there's a lot of really out there theories that are being thrown around. You know, there's this argument about misinformation information, disinformation, that kind of stuff. But in my opinion, personally, when someone's screaming about disinformation and misinformation, they're normally the ones that are spreading it. That seems to be more likely. And in saying that, however, there have been some rather uh, what could be considered to be unhinged ideas floating around out there. But I think this is good. I think this is something that we should talk about. One example was where uh, there was a post I saw of someone describing information that they had about the CIA. They were claiming, and we know that the CIA has developed some very unusual things over the years. You know, we know about the idea of the heart attack gun that's been utilized. Uh, There's other ideas of uh, advanced technologies, advanced weaponry, which would be necessary for espionage and spy games and those sorts of things. But then there was also this other argument that there was in the 1970s, very early in the 1970s, according to this particular source, which is on Twitter. So, you know, we don't know where this is coming from. Some random on Twitter. Some random on Twitter. But they were suggesting that uh, back in the early 1970s that the CIA had perfected mask technology to a point where you wouldn't be able to tell someone standing in front of you was actually wearing a mask. So like Austin like, Powers. Like Austin Powers or like uh, Mission Impossible, <laughs> you know, that kind of effect. And then the argument was, well, imagine where the technology is today. And it just so happened that it must be the algorithms, but then all these other <laughs> posts started coming up of diving into the whole Biden by Dan conspiracy theory. And have oh, you heard right. this? Yeah, yeah, that so, his ears different. That, his ears that, that, that yeah. President Biden has some type of double. And of course, there have been political figures all throughout history that have had uh, some type of double, apparently. You know, there's been, and this is to avoid assassination attempts. And you know, there's a whole range of reasons why they would have that. But the conspiracy theory about Biden by Dan is that there is some type of double that is wearing a mask of Biden, <laughs> but he's by Dan. And he's going, and so when you have the stumbling, bumbling Biden come out that you hear, where it's just like, oh, my butt's been wiped. That's the one that is now suffering from cognitive decline. But when he comes out and he's reasonably coherent, that's the by Dan double right. that's coming. So I see so you've gotten to the bottom of this conspiracy. No, not at, not by any We've means We've got by all. Dan coming up on the show later. No, but it did coincide. This is the weird synchronicity that happened, right, is that I've been waiting for a book by Nick Redfern to come out. It's called Runaway Science, True Stories of Raging Robots and High-Tech Horrors. And I pre-ordered this at the end of last year, really looking forward to get into it. Now, while it didn't have uh, any stories that were along those lines of Biden by Dan, it did describe this very strange report of there being a lab in the UK that contained political doubles that were being cloned. And I'm like, okay, well, that's that's it. Like, this is what I have to do. So for this episode, I'm going to go into Nick's new book, Runaway Science, and I'm going to bring in a whole heap of other stories of people having interactions with 
robots. And the idea, we're going to jump as far, is that the idea that extraterrestrials are not extraterrestrials at all. In fact, the interactions that we have with a lot of beings are actually robots created by advanced civilizations that are coming to Earth and in a lot of cases, attempting to wipe us out. So Nigel Kerner, in other words. You got Nigel Kerner I content. did, Yeah, I did go into Nigel Kerner a little bit. In fact, well, I shouldn't say I didn't, but uh, Nick in his book did address some of Nigel Kerner's kind of stuff. And uh, I, I don't know how I feel about that. But, I mean, I'll give you one example. So today, Ben, I sent it over to you. But Nigel Kerner was describing this idea that essentially, uh, and this comes back to uh, people like Philip J. Corso that described that, and I'll get into this, that extraterrestrials, in particular greys, are robotic drones that have been deployed by a highly advanced alien species. That's the real alien species. And humanity has no knowledge of what they are. We have no understanding of of what they are. All we know is from the greys that we've interacted with, which are these biological robots. Well, Kerner has described the greys. And Kerner kind of goes down this path that, you know, the greys have essentially become such an advanced intelligence, like they're still robotic, but because they're robotic, they don't have souls, like they don't have a spiritual path. And so what they're trying to do is they're traveling throughout the universe, trying to attain a soul so that they can achieve immortality. So it goes into this idea of reincarnation, but then Nigel Kerner puts this idea that the greys created racism to stop a bloodline that they had created many, 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 many eons ago from being contaminated. What? And I was like, oh... That's uh, that's a little bit uh, over the top, but we'll get into it in the plus section coming up later on. But Ben, let's jump into what you've got. Well, I, I wanted to touch on this Eugene Dickerson book, Touching the Source, because it has such a great opening. And in the preface, he describes that he went to Sunday school as a kid. And uh, th- that that was basically the, the end of his spiritual understanding, his spiritual path. He Once he got old enough to get out of the basic Sunday school stuff, he got really bored and just left and never looked back. Yeah, that happens to a lot of people. But in his, I think it was late 30s or early 40s, he just had this sudden transformation. And it all started when he woke up in a tomb. He went to bed in his normal bed and he, you know, went to sleep as normal, had his chamomile tea. And he he woke up stuck in some kind of sealed vault, a, a cave of sorts. And he describes kind of looking to his left and right and not seeing anything, not seeing any walls or anything, but just this sense that he's sealed in somewhere. And then he starts to freak out because he realizes he has no physical form. He can't see any arms or legs. Maybe it's the darkness. Maybe it's something else. And he's in the midst of this terror. And he suddenly understands he's not dreaming. This is 100% real. And he feels absolutely doomed. He feels like he's just in this prison and there's no way out. Does he have any physical sensations? Not like he's, he feels like he normally does when he's awake. But other than that, no, he just feels trapped in this tomb. And there's some kind of emerging thought. And he describes it almost like a, a long lost memory just bubbles to the surface. And he realizes that, oh, I've been here before. I'm inside my own skull. Inside his own skull. He's in his skull. So it's like his consciousness woke <laughs> yeah. up inside, like yeah. it was looking internally? Yeah, and he's, he's stuck there. And something about it reminds him of something he's encountered before, and he starts to understand. He instinctively knows that there's somewhere he needs to push. It's almost like in an Indiana Jones movie, there's like a secret compartment he needs to push on a space on the wall, and it'll let him out of his own skull. And he 
understands that even though he doesn't have physical hands, there's a part on the base of his skull where if he pushes hard enough, he'll be able to emerge out. And this is something we spoke about quite a lot last year. This came up a, a number of times where we covered stories where people described leaving their body through this acupuncture point at the base of their skull, right at the back. Or like the person describing like them feeling their body or their spirit, I'm sorry, turning into a goo and kind of oozing out the sutures of the skull. Yeah, so he starts doing this. He starts pushing all his will and force at this point inside this cavernous skull. And it's like he starts to pull himself out, he said. It was like he was being born again as a newborn infant, slowly squeezing his way out of this little gap in this cavernous chamber. And finally, he pops out. So does he find himself standing outside his sleeping body? Yeah, he's in his bedroom. And he looks around, he's like, oh, okay, this is my bedroom. He looks down, there's, you know, the usual trope. He sees himself lying on the bed. He freaks out. And he claims that his body is vibrating, like it's rumbling, like a jackhammer, strangely not shaking, but there's just, he talks about this vibrating energy. Uh, and he also says he can see into his body on a quantum level, but then doesn't really describe what he can see. And he also has this realization that his body, that he assumes was his identity, is really just a mask. It's a, it's a costume. And he says, I, I was only wearing it as a costume and my visible, invisible consciousness was the animating force that moved it. So he starts to wonder if he's dead, which is a natural course, yeah. logic. Uh, and he worried, well, if I don't get back into my body, surely I'm going to die. So he tries to imagine himself back. He tries to imagine himself back inside his body. And somehow this works. It's ridiculous. We all know the only way to get back in is to try and put it back on like a suit. No, no, you you got to get a run-up. You need at least <laughs> 30 feet. That's right. And you got to hit 88 miles per hour. And you jump. You jump gotta straight back jump in. Straight into the eye of the penis. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't know that part, but fine. Look, whatever gets you back in. Only way to get back in. Anyway, this works. And he starts to feel movement. He can feel his fingers moving again. He's like, oh, my God, that was absolutely incredible. And he's just lying there in his bedroom trying to understand this experience, but it doesn't stop. He starts receiving what he calls revelations from a higher source. He feels like it's it's God or something similar. He gets a sense that everything he's being, or every idea he's being injected with is genuine and pure. And basically what's being conveyed is, you know, very basic stuff like you're not your body, you are an eternal being, you have a soul, you know, you live forever, you've been here many times before, just very kind of basic spiritual stuff. But like I said, he's never encountered this before. And he he feels like his his fear of death is gone in this instant. He has Mm. this understanding that what he's being told is real. Uh, It's completely erased. And the question he asks at this point for the reader is, well, you know, how did this come about? How did this all happen? And it was straight after a period of turmoil in his life. He doesn't describe what it was, but it must have been something severe because he had a, almost a mental breakdown. And it was one of these instances where he basically got on his knees and screamed out loud, you know, God, if you're there, reveal yourself to me, reveal your existence and reveal the meaning. What's the meaning? What's the whole point of this? And really, he said he meant it with all his heart. And we've heard 
quite a few stories where this seems to be a catalyst for many people, especially when it's got genuine intention, genuine meaning. Yeah, it's it does springboard into other phenomena. It does seem to set off a chain of events yeah. for some people, at least in the stories we hear. And days passed and he he started to, uh, after this out-of-body experience, that's what seemed to have triggered it, he found himself noticing that reality had changed. Reality had shifted in a strange way. He started to notice small details that he had never seen before. Like if he would look at an object, he started to sense that it had some kind of life energy to it that he had never been aware of before. And even inanimate objects, like a rock or a mug or you know something just sitting there, he would sense that it was alive. Well, he's starting to experience animism. And he said when he went into the grocery store, it was like... Un, it was unbelievable because all the fruits and vegetables, like he was used to seeing rocks and, you know, like a brick and going, oh, wow, it's alive. He goes into the grocery store and everything, it's like a sea of living, it's like walking into the cantina bar in Star Wars where like the carrots are the aliens <laughs> and the cucumbers are talking, like everything is alive, everything's animated. Were they unhappy? No, they were quite happy. And he says when he went grocery shopping, he would basically pick the vegetable based on its energetic <laughs> vibration uh, and his connection to it. Uh, and he just marveled at the beauty of everything. He found this new perspective of life. He started to lose interest in everyday things as well after this experience. That's he, the danger with these things, though, isn't it? Is that people become, we're supposed to be in the physical for a reason. Like you're supposed to go through, you know, certain triumphs and trials. But if you start detaching from it, it could actually be quite detrimental to your daily life. Well, yes, that can be the case. But in uh, Eugene's instance, it was entirely beneficial because he did things like, well, he lost interest in the things that were, I guess you could say, bad habits. Mm -hmm. Like television, he said, he would watch a ton of it. It was no longer interesting. Uh, he had this sudden desire to put his entire life in order. And that meant everything. Like if there was something wrong with his car, he had to repair it. Then he had to get his car detailed. Then he had to, you know, clean up everything around his house and clean up inside. So full he developed spiritual OCD. Yeah, full spring clean. He uh, rearranged all his furniture. Um, he he got, it got down to the point where he was so adamant that he had to order and clean his life. He started cleaning out his YouTube history. He was like, even to the point where that had to be cleaned out. It had to be removed. He had to zero it down to a clean slate. And he just felt like he had to clear it. Now, in the process of clearing his YouTube history, and you can log into Google and just delete it, he started to be recommended different videos. And one of the videos he was recommended was one of these Neville Goddard lectures. Now, like I said at the start of the show, Goddard was this spiritual philosopher, very popular on the lecturing circuit in, I guess you could say, the 1940s up until the 1960s. And he, like I said, he was one of the main sources of this whole your thoughts create your reality idea. He really seeded it into the West in a big way. And one of the things he believed was that God was within everyone and that our consciousness was evidence of this. So very like I said, very new age ideas for this time period. I've actually got a, a sample of uh, Goddard here. 
I don't know when this lecture's from because I was looking at a ton of them today and they're all like four hours long, like just trying to find one clip. Like an Alan Watts lecture. And he just rambles on and on and on. But I managed to get uh, a little clip which will give you a sense of what his ideology is. Let's take a listen. And my purpose is to show you that we are not two, that we are one. That same creative word that created the universe and sustains it dwells in us. Therefore, with God, all things are possible. And therefore, with man, all things are possible. So he states it in one book, Matthew, with God, all things are possible. But in Mark, he states it, all things are possible to him, meaning man, who believes. Can man believe? Can man believe? I'm sorry, what? Well, this is what he thought. He believed that anything was possible if man believed and that somehow God instilled in us uh, part of his soul, his essence, and that that is your consciousness. Your consciousness is part of God, and a very simple way to explain his philosophy. Uh, it became very popular in the you know 1950s and onwards, uh, but I'll get into his philosophy a, a, a little bit later and how it relates to Eugene's story, but it'll just give you a sense of what this guy's about. There was something about his lectures that just enraptured Eugene. He just became obsessed with it. He just watched uh, lecture after lecture on YouTube of of Neville from like the 1940s, 1950s. He said, it, it absolutely ignited every cell inside my body and I identified with so much of what Neville was saying. Now, a few days after this, it's close to 3 a.m. and Eugene's dozing off. He's listening to some meditation music and his body starts to, he says, magnetically vibrate again, like something's happening. And you know, we've heard a lot of these stories before. You can get the, the sense of what's going on. He's basically going out of body. And this is what happens. He gets completely sucked out. He finds himself in another body though. Um, but it's kind of translucent. It's got a form to it. It's glowing in a way. And he starts to rise up from his bedroom. Now he sees the ceiling coming and he's freaking out, but something tells him, Don't worry, let, just let go. You'll be fine. He floats through the ceiling. And instead of actually going out into the neighborhood, like a lot of these stories uh, are, he starts traveling through this empty tunnel in space. He describes it as like a weird gray tube swirling around and around. And he finds himself in another reality. He's in a completely different world. And he's flying over this beautiful green field and he can see everything in perfect detail. He can see every blade of grass in 8K perfect vision. And the more he observes his surroundings, he says he has the impression that he's in some kind of camping area. And he sees RVs and trailers, but they look really old-fashioned. They look like they're from the 1960s or something. And eventually he learns how to navigate. Like if he just thinks of going somewhere, suddenly he'll start speeding towards that location. He directs himself with his mind. And off in the distance, he can see the lights of an old diner. And it's that classic 1950s style diner. And he decides to approach it. So he starts flying towards it in this weird translucent out of body form. And he starts flying over the highway and he sees coming towards him this classic old, uh, what are they called? Studebakers? Oh, you know, yeah. Those old cars? Yeah. And he slows slightly and he starts hovering over the top of the thing. And for some reason, he feels like he needs to have a look at who's driving this this old car. And 
as the car's approaching him, he kind of matches speed with it, looks down, and it's a, it's a gentleman in a traditional fedora, and their eyes lock. And at that instant, he realizes it's Neville Goddard driving this old Studebaker down the highway. Does he realize that he can see him? Is that yeah. kind of what and occurs? Goddard's like, what the devil are you doing, boy? <laughs> He's freaked out. There's this guy floating above his car staring at him, and Eugene freaks out. And because he freaks out, he's back in his body, straight back in. And he's like, he lay in bed, flabbergasted, he said. But he knew everything was real. Everything was true. Everything, it wasn't a vision. It wasn't a dream. He had somehow transported back in time to meet the YouTube creator he had been following. (laughs) Not the YouTube creator, but watching the guy on YouTube uh, that he'd spent the last three days absorbing his his videos. So in the future, like someone will have an out-of-body experience and go back in time and just be in P- PewDiePie's studio or something. <laughs> <laughs> like this will happen a lot in the future. You're talking about the, it'll happen to us, Ben. Oh, God. <laughs> but what makes me wonder about that is that, is there any validation? Does he have uh, any lectures where he describes seeing some ghostly form or something like that? Because that would be like a, a veridical validation. Well, considering that, that Goddard has like 6,000 hours of lectures, no, I couldn't find Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't find a reference to it. But um, during the whole experience, he, he also said that, and this is a common thing we hear with OBEs, that there was some kind of elusive unseen entity hovering yeah, near Yeah, guides him. or monitors of some kind. He could never quite see it, but he just had a sense that it was there. And this was kind of foreshadowing more mystical experiences that were, were about to Do come. You know what I think it is? I think it's the daemon. Yeah, that's what the sense that I got. It's, it's some kind of assistant spirit, some kind of daemon. Uh, but he's on this rapidly evolving path. And every day he started to look forward to these strange experiences at night because this is when they would happen. He would start to doze off to sleep and often he would leave his body and have these experiences. Now, this continues and one night he suddenly finds himself soaring over a crisp autumn forest. And again, he can zoom in and see every blade of grass and leaf and he sees like a grizzly bear rolling through the forest now, he gets the sense that he needs to land in this beautiful location, and he does. He lands in a glade, and he's taken back in the forest by this stunning light that appears before him, and he can feel this tingling sensation. It's this giant light. It's like the size of a large beach ball. It floats up towards him, and it's vibrating and pulsing and spinning. It's got this electric blue energy all around it. And he has this overwhelming sense of awareness that this glowing ball of blue energy is his true identity. It's who he is on the deepest level. He's this radiant light ball in some forest somewhere. (laughs) He says, it had suddenly been unveiled to me. I innately knew that this dazzling light was the fundamental substance of who I was, which I had seemingly forgotten. This light is me, he said. And the light indeed affirmed that it was me. He said, I wondered how I could have forgotten such a significant truth. I'm not sure what the significant truth is, <laughs> that he's a well, light ma- ball in well, a forest. Yeah, maybe he's understanding what his true form is, and that would obviously be very confronting if you don't have any knowledge of these sorts of topics. But he also says that this light ball is God or the divine force. 
and he starts to uh, move into it. He starts to merge into it, and of course, obligatory. <laughs> He starts to have this. Yeah. Look, I know that I'm quite negative with these things, but I'm always extremely apprehensive with these out-of-body stories because I feel like there is an entire realm of entities that are willing to trick you, that are willing to engulf you, consume you, use you as an energy source, as a food source. Why would you just say, have the, oh, I've got this all-knowing that I should just merge into this blue ball that I, came to me? I would love to see you in the afterlife. I'll only be there just watching because some <laughs> a god will appear before you and you'll just be like, I don't believe you. I don't, no, no. I don't Sorry, believe no, I'm, not, I'm not going Sorry, either. not buying it. Yeah, Do you have any why, ID? That's why I'll be a ghost. I'll be just trapped on this plane of existence. Do you have any papers to prove who you are? I want a, pe- a peer-reviewed study showing that you are, in fact, oh, Come God. on, I'm not that bad. <laughs> uh, anyway, he's thrust up. Like, when he enters this light ball, it's like in a video game. He gets thrown up through the forest into the sky and suddenly finds himself in an ancient era. And it's like... I don't know, it's like ancient Jerusalem or something, and he can feel the ground beneath him. Um, It's this, uh, like an ancient market of sorts, and he sees all these individuals dressed in like ancient robes and attire from some forgotten period of history. Don't tell me he's some kind of street rat scavenging for things. Well, he feels like no one's really observing that he's shown up. And I don't know what he's wearing, like if he's in his, still in his pyjamas or something. Or is he in ball form? <laughs> is he in ball form, maybe. Anyway, he's walking amongst this ancient scene and he arrives at what he says. It looks like an ancient stone synagogue of sorts. And he's immediately taken back by this ancient stonework. It's very exquisite, very detailed and beautiful. And he somehow intuitively knows this is his destination. And he also intuitively understands that the ancient synagogue has a secret entrance, much like his Indiana Jones skull, where he approaches this secret door and he understands that he can simply walk through it. I don't know if that's a secret door. If you can just, if you're in out of body form and you just walk through a wall, that's not really a secret door. Well, obviously, it's still a secret entrance to somewhere. So maybe he's passed into a previous life where he had knowledge of this entrance. Well, he passes. Well, no, I mean, he passes through it as in he goes, turns into mist and goes through the rock. Yeah, but even if he didn't know, what I'm saying is he, it's secret because he didn't know about it, but somehow he, you know, inherently knew about it. Well, anyway, he descends this stairwell and he comes into this gathering area. It seems to be this old theater where there's some kind of secret meeting of elders or something, like the, the leaders of this community. And that's like rows of seats in this half circle. And there's some argument about religion and they're arguing about the specifics of punishment for offenses and heresy and whether people should be hung or, you know, stoned or burned alive. Like oh, how barbaric. <laughs> or whether they should be lenient. You know, there's just this debate going on. And all he can do is, is observe. This is what he feels like he can't really contribute. He can just sit there and watch. But as they're going through this argument, he feels compelled to speak up. He has this irresistible urge to kind of get up and proselytize to these people that they're completely misguided, that their perceptions of God are are incorrect. And as soon as he has this feeling, this strange, like, young man appears beside him and looks looks up at him and says, allow me to accompany you to our leader, takes his hand and kind of leads Eugene into this 
specific area within this temple. Okay, so we know now that he's in humanoid form. He's not in ball. Yeah, form. he's walking around as a as a human, and he's he appears before this man dressed in ancient clothing, and he's got this crown on his head. This is the the region's king. This is the king of this wherever the hell he is in 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 the past, and he's got long black and grey streaked hair and ornate golden rings and rubies on his fingers, and he's on this table uh, in front of an ancient stained glass window, and he's staring directly at Eugene. And the king says in this very you know stately voice, "Welcome to my land," and all he can do is stare. He's like. What, what do I say to this ancient king? Uh, and the king basically says, I'd like to explain how we operate here. Like, lay down the rules. This is what happens in my kingdom. He had the intuitive sense that the king was issuing a kind of warning for the laws that would allow you to remain in his land, and especially in this temple that he was inhabiting. And while he's listening to this king proselytize all these rules, very strict, like, religious observances and things like that, he feels this hurricane. Eugene feels this hurricane kind of burning inside his stomach, this strange swirling sensation. And the king is continuing talking about these laws and regulations and religious texts and any deviation from the laws will be a crime of heresy and great punishment, blah, 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 blah. And this hurricane's like getting louder and louder and louder. And Eugene's just sitting there going, like trying to hang on while this king's lecturing him. And suddenly he becomes aware of another being inside him, which comes back to the whole Damon thing again. And he feels, he says, I feel as if my mouth was being opened by this mysterious force and I suddenly spoke directly to the king. He stands up and he says, listen, king, you're incorrect, misguided and profoundly flawed in your beliefs and conceptions of what a loving God should be. And the king's just, like the king has never been spoken to like this before. And the king doesn't know what to say. He's speechless And all of a sudden, he feels himself merging with this swirly presence inside his stomach. And suddenly, the king's like, (laughs) (laughs) He says says these lasers, yeah, these lasers. Eugene says these balls of light start streaming out of his eyeballs and they hit the king. And the king's just like... And yeah, these these light laser beams are shooting out of Eugene's eyes, converting the king's consciousness to some kind of understanding of his the error of his ways. And he's like, Eugene thinks this is some kind of amazing skill where he's revealing God to this king, but I'm like, you're just brainwashing the guy. Like you're just you're mind controlling him like hypnotoad. But that's what basically happens. He says, I was surrounding the the king with the truth of the loving God and opening his eyes to the truth. Now, he says after this, he kind of, he's back in his body again. But the whole point of this experience was apparently symbolic. It was all about the symbol of opening his eyes to the truth of who each of us was, who, who we really are inside, whatever that means. And... He realized that the source of his life, he said, had always been within him. It wasn't external to him. He said, if we desire truth, the solution lies within, and it's there when we go within. It's not found externally. So, yeah, there's some 
I mean, there's some truth to that. But it, these experiences just get more and more bizarre. Like, he's just blasted an ancient king with his laser eyes. Did this actually happen? Like, is there a king in some... <laughs> a report somewhere in ancient history of a king being blasted? Yeah, and then he just completely changed. Like, the kingdom became, like, you know, really soft on <laughs> blasphemy, basically. Uh, so, on another night... Again, he became keenly aware that he was in another location. He found himself in a desert surrounded by tufts of grass. It seemed very late at night. And he suddenly started to feel the Supreme Creator's presence around him. Now, he's completely still, he said. He felt like he was about to receive some extraordinary telepathic wisdom. And the interaction was very clear. This entity, this God entity, spoke into his mind saying, summon up whatever whatever you wish to manifest as precisely and articulately as possible in your imagination. And he does this. He starts to think of a forest and it starts to appear before him. It starts to manifest and create these beautiful, intricate trees and, you know, birds are flying around. He actually creates it. But when he lets go of the idea, it starts to fade away and vanish. This entity, this teacher God, says to him, proceed and make another attempt. And this time he concentrates on the image of a future city, some kind of sci-fi Blade Runner-esque city. And this starts to spring out of the ground and form in front of him. And he says it's like beyond anything he could imagine, but he is somehow creating it. And there's like flying cars and monorails and glistening towers and, you know, parks with people running around and children. It's very futuristic. It's Well, he's created all of this out of a single thought. And he says after this experience, like it's like this teaching experience, he finds himself back in his body. He says, I've heard it said before that your thoughts create reality. I've personally experienced this to be true. And he says, the degree to which we infuse it with power determines the degree to which it manifests. He says, as I've witnessed in the spirit world, thoughts can indeed manifest instantly. And though thoughts manifest on the physical plane as well, there is obviously a time delay. Now, he says, gaining conscious and concise control of one's thoughts is critical to creating the personal environment in which one chooses to live. He said, I used to believe that my thoughts passed behind me and vanished, but this is not the case. Thoughts are forward projections, he says, that gather momentum and will eventually confront you. And again, this is something that we've covered a lot on past shows. Thoughts are not just ephemeral things that vanish. They have real consequence, real effect. They are real tangible things. And this is really uh, at the forefront of what Neville Goddard taught. This is what he lectured on. Uh, I'll play some more audio of you here where he's really letting an audience know in the 1960s just how important it is to focus on these thoughts. Let's take a listen. But I'm asking you who come here and persist in coming to observe what you are doing in the course of 24 hours. You're not alert 24 hours, but take, say, 16 hours and try to observe what you are imagining. And if you perchance you catch yourself imagining what you do not wish to experience, stop it. Stop it right there and then, and don't give it an extra second. It may be you're in the midst of an emotion, and you'd like to complete the emotion, and tell him off completely. Don't. Stop it. So I'm telling you, your own wonderful human imagination is God. There is no other God. And that God is I am. That's his name forever and forever and forever. And when you say I am, you're actually 
announce in the fact that you are imagining. That is imagination. That's God. And it's the human imagination, and it is the eternal body of the Savior. And the only Savior is the Lord God. And where is he? In man. He gave us not the spirit of this world, he gave us a spirit of himself. And that spirit of himself is in man as man's own wonderful human imagination. Are you still like, what? <laughs> well, kind of. What I'm thinking, what he's describing there, obviously, you know, minus the, the spiritual elements, he's kind of describing an early version of cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. And this is maybe why he was popular and why, because that whole idea of, you know, stop, like thought stopping, you know, ideas and concepts, like that's what's used in modern, you know, therapy. Yeah, it really is a positive message to pay attention to your thoughts, to not dwell on yes. negative emotions, to concentrate on positive thinking. And this was, I guess, something maybe revolutionary for this time period. Absolutely, it would have been. And yep. it, was, it was very, very popular. He started to gain a lot of traction. And for Eugene, discovering this, he, he really must have latched onto this because so many of his experiences are precisely what Goddard taught. I mean, very much this experience of creating a city. Goddard truly believed this, that humankind was capable of that kind of creation in the physical world, that this kind of pure dedication of will would create these things. And that's how human beings were like gods. They were they had this innate ability. It's encompassed within everything. It's that they, concept. Now, I'm not saying I agree with this philosophy, and I'm going to delve into the philosophy a little bit uh, later on in this segment, because we can see how this can twist into unhealthy forms of, uh, I guess, um, infatuation and desire and attachment. Like if you look at modern forums where people follow Goddard's teachings and even The Secret, I mean, how many people perform this kind of attention of their thoughts on obtaining a new car? Yeah, or, absolutely. you know, getting well, a bigger house. Isn't or, that kind of what the, I mean, the anecdotal kind of evidence is, is that people use The Secret to attain wealth? Yeah. And this wasn't what Goddard was about. He was uh, about uh, very much the, I guess, the the spiritual aspects, the spiritual progress of humankind and the individual. Uh, but with Eugene's story, he it goes in some weird directions because he starts getting recommended different videos on YouTube. And I feel like this is a really weird story weird. because you, the YouTube algorithm is almost directing his spiritual experiences. Because he starts getting recommended crop circle videos. Or is it the other way though, Ben? Is it that his thought patterns are somehow influencing through a mechanism that we don't understand, the AI or the, the algorithm, which is causing us to take <laughs> I, I don't know. But it's like this chicken and the egg kind of thing. Anyway, he starts watching crop circle videos um, and something about one of the, the designs in the crop circles, he feels something start to happen in his mind. And when he goes to sleep that night, <laughs> he has a full-on kundalini experience. Of course. I, <laughs> I, I thought this is where that kundalini is coming. Well, this isn't where he sets his parents' house on fire, but he does. He has this strange, like, swirling serpent going up inside his spine, and I won't go through all the details. You've heard the kundalini stuff before. But when he gets up to write about this experience, because he's bamboozled by it, he doesn't know what kundalini is, he finds something take over his hand. And instead of him writing this diary entry he finds his hand furiously writing out this passage and he's reading it as it's being written, going, what the hell is going on? 
And this passage says, I am continuously seeking your attention. When you look deeply within yourself, you will discover me. What you are seeking out is also seeking you. My power resides within you, and it is within you that you will find me. Realize that I am eternally with you. You are a companion of the divine. It's the daemon, it is. Yeah, that's what I think. Whilst the brotherhood of man will eventually understand, man is sleeping and must wake up. Everything you desire manifests behind the veil. The very essence of who you are becomes it. We are calling you home to the kingdom you inhabited prior to the existence of the world. And again, Eugene references Goddard because Goddard lectured on this. Uh, He references the verse John uh, 3.14 in the Bible where uh, it's quoted as, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he starts to wonder if the geometric patterns of these crop circle formations somehow did the same thing to him, lifted him up like the serpent in the wilderness, referencing the Kundalini experience. Well, I mean, you hear it quite commonly of people that, you know, go into crop circles, they feel like there's some type of uh, energy change that takes place because there's something that's being uh, triggered essentially by the geometry of the crop circle. So anyway, this continues. He has all these other experiences where there's one where he's in a giant tornado in another dimension and a giant hand comes and rescues him from it and everything's like a metaphor for his spiritual progress. Or like, It's all kind of all over the place. And it gets to the point where you're like, how many of these are just dreams? Like, Yeah, you have to question that. Are you just sharing your dreams with us? Because these are getting weirder and weirder. Until he uh, goes to his family's house, it must be the Thanksgiving holiday or something, and uh, it's his old childhood home, and the rooms are packed with people. He's sleeping on the sofa in the living room, and it's really late, quiet, and he drifts off, and he suddenly becomes conscious in the hallway behind the, the living room sofa where he's lying, and... He, he doesn't explain how this happens. It's almost like, again, it's being directed by some other force, maybe his daemon or some other external entity. But he feels himself raise his right arm without any intention of doing so. And it's kind of weird, like, Yoga plane comes out of his hand. <laughs> and this, like, yeah, like in a comic book, this fire starts spreading out of his palm. Now, this is probably like 2 a.m. in the morning. Everyone in the house is completely asleep. And he's just unknowing, like, un, without any control, setting his parents' house on fire with this strange kundalini energy bursting out of his palm. And he's just like, like a blowtorch setting the hallway on fire. Look, I, I can't believe I'm asking this, but wouldn't you stop? He has no control. It's like something else is controlling his body. He sees the flames start to consume the hallway. Like He sees the wallpaper peeling down. Like Everything's burning. The smoke's starting to appear. And he starts to realize, oh, crap, this isn't out of body. I'm actually standing here. This is real life. This is happening right now. This is how I'm oh, actually burning I see. the house down. Right, so maybe he's actually a little bit confused because all the other experiences have been seemingly in other locations, right? So, well, yeah, and he's watching this fire spread. And he says, I somehow knew that whatever had ignited the fire within me was also capable of extinguishing it. And he says, that same unseen force that had raised his hand initially raised it again. And this time, this blue Mr. Freeze ice-like mist comes out. Seriously. (laughs) And he's like, time to cool off. 
and he extinguishes all the flames. And what, just repairs all the damage well, to the building? Not only that, that's a great question. Not only that, he says his magical uh, ice powers also molecular, like heal the molecular properties of the house and the paint and the wall and everything and return it back to new. It's a little bit convenient to not be able to back up your story, isn't it? He says molecule by molecule, the whole thing was repaired. <laughs> and as everything restored to its original state, this is, it just gets great after this. He says, I morphed suddenly into another reality frame. He says, I moved down a corridor in what appeared to be an underground secret factory. He said, I I surfaced out of nowhere and had the clear impression that I was in a time period several hundred years in the future. So this is what I think's happened. He's somehow jumped into the year 2223, and he's now in some kind of weird uh, production facility in the former United States, Why the future United States. What does he see around him? Well, it, it's like some kind of um, construction factory. There's like robots making things. He's in this weird metal corridor. There's like weird halogen lighting that he's never seen before. And there's a pair of double doors in front of him, like very futuristic double doors. And <laughs> How do you have futuristic double doors? <laughs> they were white and shiny. And they're very like ceramic. They're made of ceramic, <laughs> some exotic ceramic material with blue LEDs in them. Anyway, as he as he's staring at these doors, they burst open, and, and like, he says, a, a, "A Chinese man in his mid thirties starts sprinting towards him. He's wearing an elaborate future martial arts outfit." <laughs> And he's got a pair of nunchucks. <laughs> and this guy comes up to him and he's just like, he's just like sprinting at him with these nunchucks. He comes right towards him. And Eugene, Eugene suddenly realised that this future nunchuck-wielding Chinese man from some production facility in the future United States wants to kill him. Now, I don't know why this is never explained. But somehow within him, Eugene, like before, like with the the ice power and the yoga flame. Oh, no. Raises his right right hand. And he's like... And he, I was expecting him to like spray paint the walls pink with this guy's like gibbs. But... He basically, the power he uses is to freeze time. And he he looks up and this futuristic like Chinese factory worker with nunchucks is just about to crack Eugene's skull. Like the nunchuck is frozen inches from his head, but he's somehow frozen time with this supernormal ability. Now, within him, he discovers another ability where he uses his secret inception powers and he injects a thought into the nunchuck-wielding Chinese factory workers' (laughs) guy's mind that he doesn't want to kill Eugene. So So it does sound like, though, it's a lot of mind control going on here. So, yeah, I mean, after this this happens, after he injects this thought, like, don't worry, it's like a Jedi mind trick. You don't want to kill me. I'm totally cool. I didn't see anything in the factory I wasn't supposed to see. Everything's cool. Don't hit me with the nunchucks. Suddenly he's like... And the, chi- the Chinese guy just comes awake, kind of looks at Eugene, drops his nunchucks and just goes, 
Haro, and keeps walking. <laughs> and just walks down the hallway. And at this point, he says, I came to the realization that I possess the ability to shift the intention of this man uh, trying to assassinate me. Uh, and he says he suddenly found himself uh, returning to his body with this newfound knowledge of power. So I am now where you were <laughs> 10 minutes ago. How do we not know this is a dream? <laughs> it just sounds like an elaborate, insane dream. No, this is all part of his YouTube-driven Neville Goddard you know, look, crop circle <laughs> spiritual development. I was just about, I was thinking about it. I was just about to say, look, this is absurd. It's absurd that a YouTube algorithm is driving your spiritual awakening. That sounds ridiculous. But then I thought, hang on a second, all throughout you know, history, when we've spoken about these stories before, it seems like the phenomenon moves with the technology. It's like John Keel had telephone calls going through. D. Scott Rogo had telephone calls from the dead. You know, there's weird telegrams that showed up in the early 1900s You know, with the Ascended Masters, all that kind of stuff. It would make sense that if there's some type of spiritual power on the other side trying to come through, why wouldn't it? manipulate modern technology. It would make absolute sense. Then he ends up fighting a Chinese ninja in a future <laughs> factory. But maybe in the future, this is a future timeline where the CCP invades America and completely takes over and all of America just becomes... Aren't nunchucks Japanese though? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's nunchucks in China. Well, they took over the Japanese as well. They hired Japanese workers to work in the American iPhone factories. So all of, like, wherever he is in Ohio or something is just a giant, Ohio is a giant iPhone factory. And they're also capable of detecting interdimensional interlopers? Is that what's yes, going on? Okay. that's what happened. They, they thought he was an intruder. And then the kicker, the kicker to this story is that in the same place he had this experience in the hallway is exactly where he saw his dead grandma when he was seven years old as a kid. Uh, ben back strong in 2023. Oh, God. <laughs> Coming back strong. Coming in with the big guns in 2023. So, uh, he, has a, a, <laughs> he has a bunch of other experiences. No, wait, wait. You can't just drop dead grandma on us and not elaborate on the story. There's nothing to elaborate on. When he was seven years old in that house, because that's the house he grew up in, he saw his dead grandmother like smiling at him oh, in the hallway. Okay. Right. And that's it. And yeah, that's that's it. And that's the same place where he had his yoga flame Chinese nunchucks experience. Uh, so it gets to the point where he decides to demand physical signs of this spiritual connection he has because the whole Neville, Neville Goddard thing is that you have God inside you. God's given you this spark of consciousness and if you tap into it, you become a God. Essentially, that's what he argues. And... Uh, Quite an arrogant argument. Though. Yeah, well, Eugene just wanted to test this, which is another thing Goddard said to do, was to test the theory. And he started to demand physical uh, manifestations of this connection to God. Uh, he started to demand them be revealed in his waking life, in his physical reality. And he said it started to happen in those kind of strange, synchronistic ways we often hear about. Like he would often see synchronized numbers. Like he would see a bunch of license plates that read 777 or every time he checked the time, it would be 3.33 p.m. Or, you know, the uh, his alarm would go off on his clock, on his watch and he would, you know, glance at it and be 5.55. It was always sy synchronous yeah, numbers like that. Yep. 
Um, you know, like he'd check his phone message and it'd be 12, 12, stuff like that. But one of the ones that kept on reoccurring was he kept on seeing triple four. He saw it everywhere. He saw it on billboards, every receipt he got, he would check the number, it'd be triple four, tracking number from a consignment, it would be a triple four. And he just kept on seeing triple four absolutely everywhere. Is that an omen of doom? That wasn't four, like at least in Japanese culture, it's an idea of death. Yeah, isn't it death in Asia? Yeah. Death, death, death. Yeah. So he he doesn't pursue it. He just thinks them. Uh, this will be revealed to me later, the meaning behind this. And one day while he's driving to an appointment, he has this feeling that he has to stop at this department store. And he tries to ignore this feeling, but it's one of those things where it's just driving him, like, go to the department store, go to the department store. So he does. He pulls over, parks, goes to the department store. And he thinks, uh, Christmas is coming up. I think I'll just buy some gifts for my family. So he goes into uh, one of the clothing stores uh, and he's looking for, you know, shirts for his cousin or whatever. And he decides to call his mother because he he doesn't know their sizes. So he calls his mom on his phone and he's like, uh, you know, mom, how big is everyone's, like how big is cousin Jimmy? You know, will he fit in a medium? And he's going through all this on the phone. And there's this weird exchange. It's so strange. Basically, when he gets off the phone, he hears this voice next to him say, you know, finding clothes that fit and satisfy people is extremely difficult. And he turns around and there's this young, handsome man he's never seen before. And he's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard. And he's like, oh, I couldn't help overhearing your conversation. And he's like, look, and he's, this guy starts showing him clothes on the rack that might fit the family members he's just eavesdropped on. This random people, stranger. People do weird things. Really? But it, is, it is unusual. And he's like, what about this shirt? This will be really nice on Cousin Jimmy. This is the perfect size. And so Eugene describes this afternoon at the department store where he's hanging out with this strange Both. young man picking out clothes for his family members. It's really weird. And he he basically gets to the point where he befriends this guy and offers to buy him a shirt for helping him pick out all these clothes for his family members. So he takes his advice. It's Yeah, he takes his advice. He buys all the clothes. The whole time I'm just thinking... Gay. <laughs> Am I wrong? Is that... Is that a reasonable <laughs> assumption to make with this weird scenario? Yeah, that was a... No, you're right. Okay, you're right. <laughs> so anyway, he buys this guy uh, this shirt. The guy's like, oh, that's a beautiful shirt. Thank you. And as they're leaving the store together, I, don't th- I think Eugene's completely oblivious to what's actually going on. The guy says, oh, bef- before I go, I have to, like, I just have to give you something. I have to activate your Kundalini. Yeah, well, he, g- <laughs> he goes to his van. He's got this creepy van. and he dri- Baba style? He drives over in his van and Eugene waits for him. He's got a van. He's got a van. He's got a creepy van with all this stuff in it. <laughs> and he climbs inside and he basically pulls out this really abstract piece of art. And he's, he's, the guy says, I'm an artist and I just have to give this to you. It's like, you absolutely have to have it. It's meant for you. And Eugene says it's, it's kind of shit. Like it's really like abstract and lame and there's shapes and stuff, something everywhere. It's like chalk on canvas. Yeah. But you have to be nice and have to. 
But while Courteous. You, while Eugene's holding it, he says he feels a little mysterious. Like the the temperature changes, and he can't explain it, but something weird is going on. Like there's some kind of tingling sensation, and again, gay. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I don't. I know you don't know anything about gay hookups, but I'm assuming that it's got nothing to do with exchanging art. Okay, <laughs> isn't that how it's normally done? <laughs> don't gay guys carry around art in their car at all times? So just in case they see someone interested, they exchange art, and that's the formal way <laughs> of initiating a gay relationship. That's how it happens, right? Yeah, on grind of those swap NFTs. <laughs> So anyway, uh, this guy says to him, I refer to this piece as the fours. And there's actually three in a series. And it's the four, 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 you see. It's the fours. The series oh, so of that's fours. the weird connection he's been seeing. And he's like, four, four, four everywhere. Pleasure to meet you. Bye. And he drives away in his weird van. And Eugene's just standing there with this horrible artwork just... Like, <laughs> Is the artwork in the book? No, it's, oh. not, it's not in the book. But he he's basically like... <gasps> This is the revelation he's been waiting for. This is the the cold, hard evidence, the smoking gun, that his connection to this spirit world is is real. It's feeding back on of his intentions. It's showing him signs, and it's revealed this very elaborate um, demonstration of this underlying power behind the veil. And he says, when he pulls into traffic as he leaves the um, the, the department store. It's very, very busy and he can only just pull out. He has to wait a bit and he pulls out and the car in front of him has a number plate that says blessed. Yeah, that's, no, that doesn't, that's not a synchronicity. That's just you reading into something that isn't there. (laughs) That's a synchronicity. What, because some weird gay guy just gave you a piece of art and you drive out, you see the word blessed, you're like, oh. What if he drove out and it said Bitcoin or something? That that wouldn't have any meaning, but it says blessed. It means he's blessed. Why are you so cynical? Oh, you don't be. I'm very cynical. Uh, So, yeah, there's a a bunch of other experiences. There's one where he meets um, Abraham from the Bible, but Abraham is a hermaphrodite. (laughs) (laughs) And he doesn't go... They also swap art? He doesn't... (laughs) Yeah, they swap art. (laughs) And... um, he encounters like the gods of Olympus and he uses some kind of weird, oh, he's got another power. Like he's got the ice power and he's got the yoga flame and he's got the stopping time, mind control ability. But he also has an ability to breathe steam out of his mouth because there's an experience where all these demons, black demons are coming down this mountainside and he's like, kills all the demons with his steam breath. (laughs) <laughs> See how desperate I was to try and spice this segment up a bit with some you know, anime sound effects. The problem with it is that uh, the, the stories he's describing, I don't know, I mean, and, and maybe that's part of it though, like being really over the top is because the experience is genuine. But then it sounds so much over the top and you hear it like people that describe some of the most outrageous past life experiences where there were kings and queens and that kind of thing. Like he's meeting Olympus gods. Yeah, it gets to the know? point where he's he wakes up, like he goes to sleep and he wakes up out of body and he does he's on top of something kind of black and hard he doesn't know what it is he realizes he's riding a dragon and he looks around and there's other dinosaurs flying around him and he looks down on the ground and it's Jurassic Park and he says this is actually a memory of a very ancient previous life on earth there you go there you have it 
I predicted it. It's got to be Atlantis or something, right? There's dinosaurs everywhere. Um, It'd only be Atlantis if he's having sex with it. I think he does have sex with a dragon <laughs> at some point. And it's a male dragon too. So. Gay. Uh, and finally, like one of the last experiences he describes was something happened to him in the fall of 1989 when he was 19 years old. Uh, he was at university. He was in the the dorm and um, very busy time. And he, he ended up crashing out during in the middle of the day. He had a nap in his in his dorm room. And very just very quickly explain this. He he claims he woke up and there was a a grey alien standing over him. And he says it was four feet tall, big almond shaped eyes, like classic grey alien. This is right at the end of this crazy OBE Neville Goddard spiritually inspired book, and he's encountering greys. And the grey kind of gets shocked that he's woken up and, and can see it, and then the grey vanishes, and he's like, "What the hell is that?" That is a red flag. Now, yeah, uh, now. 20 years later, when he's having all these out-of-body experiences, in one of them, he basically goes out of body and there's a UFO, like a triangle-shaped UFO, that sucks up his astral form like a tractor beam on board the craft. And he observes the crew and they're all like weird little humanoid greys. And he suddenly has the realisation that, oh, I'm one of them and I was part of their crew in a distant past life. And... Now I'm here on Earth. Yeah, no, mate. Yeah, what is what is that? See, that that is more consistent with a lot of the abductee phenomenon of people describing that. Yeah, they have interactions with greys, but they also have like these uh, out of body abductions. And it sounds like maybe that's what's happening to this guy. Like maybe he's created this elaborate kind of story and scenario behind these experiences, but he's just simply an abductee. Like he's been taken out of his body so many times and he's traumatized. So the only way he can deal with it is by seeking out these, you know, new age concepts and allowing him to somehow, you know, condense it into his reality. If that's true, it's unconscious because he doesn't mention any other experiences like that. Yeah, it is. It's like the brain or the mind, I'm sorry, trying to compensate for something so horrifying. But I, I tend to get the feeling that there's something about the Goddard lectures that has injected itself into his mind. And I mean, a lot of the things yes. that he he talks about, Eugene and Goddard, they, like I said, they're, they're good, positive things, like paying attention to your thoughts and focusing on positive things. And stop technique. Very healthy, yeah, very healthy habit. Um, exploring the spiritual realms and, and, and seeking out this kind of knowledge, absolutely a very good thing. But I wanted to look, just to finish the segment off, I wanted to quickly look at some excellent research that Mitch Horowitz did into Neville Goddard uh, on this article over at halfbishop.com. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's from uh, June of 2016. And he he talks about Neville Goddard uh, and, and his kind of spiritual vision. And Goddard wrote over 10 books, very popular books. And to sum up his idea, you could basically say, Everything you see and experience, including other people, is the result of your own thoughts and emotional states. Like it's, it is that extreme in its view that everything is your creation. So, is it this idea that the way that you think attracts people in that state, or is it you actually are creating them like a topic way? Yeah, like literally creates them. He says each of us dreams into existence an infinite number of realities and outcomes. And Horowitz writes that. When, when you realize this, when you realize what well, this is what Neville taught, 
You will discover yourself to be a slumbering branch of the creator clothed in human form and at the helm of limitless possibilities. And maybe this is what attracted people to his lectures is that he was saying, you are a God. You don't have to follow God because you are God. You are a God. So in his lectures though, like where did all this come from? Where did his philosophy come from? Well, in his lectures, Neville Goddard spoke about this master that taught him. He was a turbaned Ethiopian-born rabbi named Abdullah. And there's a quote from Neville of their initial meeting saying, when I first met my friend Abdullah back in 1931, I entered a room where he was speaking and when the speech was ended, he came over, extended his hand and said, Neville, you are six months late. And he said, I'd never met the man before. So I said, I'm six months late. How do you even know me? The brothers told me that you were coming and you are six months late. So the the brothers, it's the sense that he's part of this secret society. He's part of the great white brotherhood. According to Neville, the two of them studied Hebrew, Scripture, and Kabbalah together for five years, which planted the seeds of Neville's philosophy, of his mental creativity. Neville said that his first understanding of the power of creative thought came while he was living in a rented room on Manhattan's Upper West Side during the winter of 1933. He was depressed, basically. He had a career in theatre which wasn't going well. And uh, he had seen himself as a failure. He, he felt like he was failing and uh, he had no money. He was broke. The uh, Christmas holiday period was coming up and his family actually lived in Barbados and he desperately wanted to join them, but he couldn't afford to travel. Now, this master of his, Abdullah, told him, live as though you were there and it shall be. So he tried this. He was wandering the city, uh, the, the streets of the city of New York and basically adopted the feeling that he was at home in Barbados with his family. Like just every kind of thought had that essence to it that he was already home. And he was uncompromising in this idea. It's like created his own fantasy of sorts and really convinced himself that he was in Barbados and he had traveled first class to get there. Now, on one December morning before the last ship was due to sail out of New York for Barbados, he gets a letter in the mail and he opens up the letter and it's from this uh, kind of out of touch brother who he hasn't spoken to in years. And there's $50 inside and a ticket to sail first class to come and see the family for Christmas. And to Goddard, his mind powers had created manifested that. that, yes. Just like the secret. It's like he manifested this into existence because of his pure focus and dedication. And this was part of his philosophy that you attract what you believe to be true. This is what he wrote. Now, he reasoned that mankind could achieve any goal, any goal, if he adopted the feeling of it in the present. And the key was that you had to truly believe. Now, this is where it starts to get muddy, especially when you look at some of the online communities, like there's a subreddit of the Neville Goddard technique and his teachings and there's all these forums. And people do these posts where they're like, look, I got a new car or, you know, they would post a a picture of their new hi-fi system or look, I got a new house or look, I got, I, I found a girl, I got married. And there's all these, um, you know, very positive posts of people that have achieved what they sought through this positive uh, 
I guess, mind control in a way. But other posts you see are people saying, like, I did this for, you know, six months and it didn't work. You know, I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't achieve what I set out to achieve. It it didn't work. And the replies are always, you just didn't believe enough. That's exactly what I was going to say. You just didn't believe enough. You've actually got to believe. You just didn't believe enough. And it's, there's this funny kind of middle path you have to walk with this positive thinking stuff because yes positive thinking obviously is very beneficial we know this it's it's a great way to live your life to always be a glass half full kind of person to always look at the positive side it, it really wonderful way to live but there are hard limits there's yeah. hard limits to what you're capable of there's hard limits to what you're destined to achieve there's hard limits to basically every aspect of your life. It's like, I'm never going to be in the NBA. <laughs> it's like, yeah, as I much can as believe, you to be when you're a teenager. but then the, the, you know, the, the believers in this would say, but that's just, you just demonstrated that you don't believe enough that you'll be in the NBA. <laughs> but, and, and that's the problem. Like if you uh, believe and you become obsessed with it and kind of live in this whimsical reality, which is just not true, uh, it ultimately will cause you to have a lot of pain. Yeah, there's a certain misery. trap. It's a it's a bit of a trap. Like it's very it's a very alluring philosophy, uh, but of, of course the problem is what people wish for and what people wish to obtain aren't noble things anymore. People wish to obtain material goals. They have lustful desires. They have um, selfish goals. That's what people generally try and obtain in the modern world. You know, I mean, that makes obvious sense and that's the way that I feel as well. But then, you know, looking at the other side of that, what's necessarily wrong with someone who, you know, is it's it's hard these days, you know, like inflation is up and you know, everything costs so much more and we're toiling away longer hours at work and automation isn't making things better. It's only getting worse. What's wrong with a person kind of just having like a, a positive mindset that they can get a new car or like what's really wrong with that? Well, I'll give you an example. So, you know those, uh, you know those singing competition shows, like uh, those Idol. What are they called? Yeah, Australian Idol, Australian, American, American Idol, Idol those yeah, shows. The X Factor. You know, you always get those people in the auditions who think that they're amazing, and they truly believe that they're amazing, but they always put them on these shows because they're awful. Of course, that's why it's and, part of the entertainment. And by yeah, it's it's hilarious. It's entertaining, but. No one's maybe no one's ever told them that they suck. Maybe, but maybe they just don't believe those people that they truly believe that they are capable of being the next pop star. They are the next king of pop. They just need to be noticed. They need to be recognized. Ultimately, that's a a, a damaging idea because they're not. I mean, they're not fulfilling their potential. Their potential might be in something else. They're they're, they're maybe destined to do something else in their life that they will actually, you know, achieve fulfillment. Look, one thing that I've, in my olden days now, have realized is that um, I think that, like, there's that depiction of, like, the oak tree. You look at a mighty oak tree, and the reason why it's standing today is because it's weathered all these storms. It's had its limbs knocked down, and it's so strong because it's gone through this pressure. Mm. And I guess it's kind of the same idea here. You shouldn't just wish for something. You probably have to go through these pressures. You have to go through these experiences so that you can grow from that experience. And it's hard to see when you're in the middle of it. But I don't know. I mean, as I said before, there's a big difference between you not understanding that you're never going to be a pop star as opposed to you going, well, I really wish I had a new car. Well, the origin of the philosophy came from this so-called master 
this Abdullah figure. So what Horowitz dives into in this article I'll link to is, is this just like a Blavatsky-esque, oh, they're in the Himalayas somewhere in... It has that feel. Like, is it very similar to that? Did did Neville Goddard just borrow this idea from Blavatsky and just say he had some master? Or is it an actual person? Is Was there an actual Abdullah black rabbi that was teaching this stuff? Well, what's amazing is that other people in history have mentioned Abdullah. So there's this Irish immigrant writer, Joseph Murphy. Uh, he arrived in New York City in the early 1920s. Uh, and he's... He had this mega-selling book in 1963, and you still po- see it pop up all the time in, in Amazon, The Power of Your Subconscious Mind. You've probably seen this a million times yeah. on Amazon lists, right? This was this huge book, massively popular book, and it's the same kind of thing that Goddard was talking about, the power of positive thinking. And shortly before his death in 1981, uh, Murphy... The, he gave a series of interviews that was published in uh, the French press in Quebec. And in these interviews, he revealed that he had his own encounter with this mysterious Abdullah character. Now, Bernard Canton recounted the tale in this book he wrote in 1987. Uh, He said it was in New York that Murphy also met the Professor Abdullah, a Jewish man of black ancestry and native of Israel, who knew in every detail all the symbolism of each of the verses of the Old and New Testaments. This meeting was one of the most significant in Dr. Murphy's spiritual evolution. In fact, it it may have even led to his book. In fact, it probably did lead to his book. In fact, Abdullah, who had never seen nor known the Murphy family, said flatly that Murphy came from a family of six children and not five, as Murphy himself believed. Now, when Murphy heard this. He was like, what do you mean I came from a family of six? This is bizarre. He was intrigued. So he ended up contacting his mother and said, look, this you know strange guy said that I'm from a family of six. Why would he say something like that? And his mother broke down and basically said, no, I had, you have a brother who died shortly after birth and we buried him and we've never spoken about him since. Mm. So this guy, Abdullah, knew this. Again, suggesting he had some kind of power. Maybe he is one of these ascended masters that the theosophists talk about. So by the mid-1950s, Neville's story, Neville Goddard's story of tutelage under this Abdullah character um, had an influence on Carlos Castaneda as well. Oh, really? there's this weird connection here. You see, Castaneda... As you know, he had his own secretive teacher, Don Juan. Yeah. And it was a similar thing where Don Juan was very mysterious. No one knew the true identity. He would come and go as he pleased, kind of this drifter in and out of society. Now, it turns out that Castaneda's, I think it was Castaneda's wife, her sister was, was it her sister or her cousin was very close to Neville Goddard. And this woman would uh, often tell Castaneda about Neville Goddard. And apparently Castaneda wasn't interested until she started to tell him about Neville Goddard's teacher, his secret master, Abdullah. And she said, like, it was more than the message that attracted Carlos. It was Neville himself. He was so mysterious. Nobody was ever really sure who he was or where he had come from. And 
they couldn't even be sure about this this Abdullah business, this Indian teacher who was always back there in the jungle. The only thing you really knew was that Neville was here and that he might be back next week. But then again, there was a certain power in that position, she said, an appealing kind of freedom in the lack of past, and Carlos knew it. So there's a suggestion that Carlos Castaneda spun his whole story out of being influenced by Neville Goddard's secret master, Abdullah. That's That's where he got the idea. One hell of a story to spin, though. I mean, Castaneda, as much as his work is is highly controversial, even uh, Jeffrey Mishlove, I was looking at some of his work only recently, he was saying that there were elements that come from Castaneda that have some, there's something that just makes you question, well, is this true? Like, it wasn't all just completely made up. There seemed to be elements that suggested that he was having real experiences in some capacity. The only real experiences he was having was with all the the female followers in the jungle. Well, it was that too, yes. I, I am aware Exchanging of Exchanging artwork stories. at all <laughs> hours of the night. So there was... The, the weird thing about this story, though, so we're like, okay, so this Abdullah guy, it's just some fantasy. You know, he made up that he had a master. You know, he just wanted to be like Blavatsky. But the question that's asked here by Horowitz is, well, does he exist though? Is there a plausible candidate? And in fact, one does exist because in the 1920s and 30s, there was this black nationalist mystic named Arnold Josiah Ford. And like Neville, this guy Ford, he was born in Barbados in 1877, the son of a preacher, but he arrived in Harlem around 1910 and he was like a leader in this Ethiopianism movement. Uh, it's like, it's it, it was like proto-Rastafarianism. It existed before Jamaican Rastafarianism. And these movements held that the East African nation of Ethiopia was home to the lost tribe of Israelites who had kind of preserved the teachings of this ancient belief system. You know, like we, you got the black Israelites yep. today, those guys on the streets. And he was considered an Ethiopian rabbi, just like this Abdullah character that Neville Goddard spoke about. Now, the, th- the weird thing is, this, this guy, Josiah Ford, Arthur Josiah Ford, he lived in New York City at the same time Neville began his discipleship with Abdullah at the same time that Neville was living in New York City. That's a weird coincidence. It's very likely that they could have run into each other. There's a historian named Howard Brotz who studied the black Jewish movement in Harlem. And he wrote about this guy, Arthur Ford, and said that it's certain that he studied Hebrew with some immigrant teacher and was a key link in approximations of Talmudic Judaism within the Ethiopianism movement. So that would fit the description because Neville Goddard spoke about this Abdullah character as tutoring him in, in Hebrew and in the Kabbalah. So this guy would have known all that. He would have had the the background to teach that. And this, this black nationalist guy, Arthur Ford, also taught mental metaphysics. Which was? Part of his whole philosophy was that there was a certain mind power that was inherent in every individual. And through adherence to this Ethiopianism philosophy... You could basically uh, channel God's power. You could change reality. Just sounds like an excuse for changing art to me. Yeah, it could be. Uh, so there's all these commonalities between Goddard's secret teacher and this black rabbi, this turban-wearing black nationalist in Harlem in the 1930s. It all suggests that this was the same guy. So 
I think he actually did have a real master. This is, I think Horowitz has actually helped identify him. It's this guy. He ran into this proto-Rastafarian guy in Harlem in the 1930s. He was like, yeah, man, this is, this is a great philosophy. And he basically ran with it. Well, I mean, clearly he became, you know, influential. It had, you know, a power to become influential. So there must be something to it. Now, there was a, a, an occult philosopher, Israel Ugardi, who studied some of these movements during this time period. And he looked at uh, Neville's ideas, Neville Goddard's ideas, and he said, look, there's some profound truth in them. But he said the biggest problem was that he was spreading these ideas without any attention to training or practice. And part of his criticism was that the average person lacks the training or technique to focus the mind in the way that Goddard was naturally able to do. Um, he says, like, Neville used to be a dancer, he used to be in theatre, he used to know how to relax his body and get into this focused mindset. He says the average person in his audience doesn't know that mechanism, doesn't know how to do this. He said it may work for him, but not for other people. Now, in his 1961 book, The Law and Promise, Neville kind of fights back against this criticism and he gives all these examples of people who said they've achieved incredible success. But again, all of it is these material goals. It's like a new house, a new car, cash, you find cash in your pocket, that kind of stuff. And this kind of, this became the focus of the philosophy. And perhaps that's why in the late 1950s, Neville Goddard suddenly changed. He came out with this radical new direction. And the reason he did this is because he had this strange experience in 1959 where he claims he was reborn as a child after being trapped within his own skull. Oh, okay. So does that mean that, you know, the protagonist of our story today has just simply read that somewhere? I started to think that as well. I'm like, did this guy start watching all these YouTube videos before this happened? Or is it that this is some type of mechanism? Is there something in the lectures of of Goddard that will set you on the path of these spiritual experiences? Is there something embedded in the philosophy, something unseen that will send you forth on this path? Because ultimately, once he had this experience where he's burst forth, rebirth from his own skull, he starts to preach of the promise. And the promise is that each of us is Christ waiting to be liberated through metaphysical rebirth. This is the true symbolic meaning of the crucifixion in which God became man so that man could one day know himself as God. Yeah, I've heard this in other New Age concepts. It's like uh, life and the universe is simply God experiencing itself. But I don't necessarily believe that. I don't. It doesn't seem consistent with other stories that we hear. His fans hated this. Did they really? Go back to the old stuff. What's all this, you know, where Jesus, like, what is this? And he he went on to claim that nothing in the Bible is based on any reality at all. It's all just a metaphor for like some kind of psychology of man. People hated that stuff. And when he died in, what was it, 1972, there was just a tiny obituary in the LA Times. He didn't really have much of an impact anymore. But what Horowitz points out in this article is that in the last kind of, you know, 10 to 20 years, there's been a renaissance in this kind of thinking. Again, think of The Secret, Mm. this whole positive movement, new age thinking. Does The Secret have any connection to Goddard's work? I don't know. 
I don't know if he's mentioned in any way, but you'd have to think it comes from that. The problem is, I don't want to offend anyone, although I don't care if I do, but with The Secret, it really did have this cringe feeling around it. It A bit like a culty kind of thing. It really did have a culty feel of materialism. Yeah, that's the biggest criticism, that it's materialistic. Mm. Uh, But yeah, there's this new wave of popularity on this kind of thinking. And Horowitz even says, if if you look at the quantum measurement problem, you know, the whole idea of... Until a particle is observed, it's either a wave or or, or a A particle. particle. This is exactly what Goddard taught. He taught that everything exists in a a state of potentials. And it was through our will and through our thoughts that we select the ultimate outcome. And that was the core of his philosophy, that you design your reality. You're responsible for creating your reality. I think there's a certain wisdom in that, though. I mean, you particularly see it these days with this whole, um, especially recently, it seems like victimhood has become um, this popular kind of, it's even a virtue signal in a way that if you're a victim, but what I've noticed is it's actually a trap. People that perceive themselves as victims, like we all know people that are like that, they seem to be incapable of breaking out of that and actually not be a victim. And achieve, resp- yeah. and achieve something and, you know, become greater one than what they are. It's like they get trapped inside it because it's what they're thinking. Well, if you believe that you create your own reality, that's the ultimate taking responsibility for your own life. Yeah, I mean, right. If everything happens to you is because of something you did, that is ultimate responsibility. And you're right. I mean, that is certainly lacking in some thinking these days. But if you look at the purely quantum idea of that observation principle, without the observation, there's this state of potential particle or wave. If you purely look at that quantum level, Neville Goddard was correct. Yeah, We know that's true. We know that that observation problem is true. That's the thing. Did this theoretical, you know, physics concept come to him through an ascended master? No, it came through him through this black nationalist. Well, that's what I'm saying, though. Is Rastafarian he? dude who was smoking ganja in Harlem in the 1930s. That's the thing. All of this just came from too much weed in 1930. Well, then again, that has this idea of what, you know, shamans have described with ayahuasca, you know, conveying knowledge and information. Was he somehow gaining knowledge and information from a hallucinogenic substance in THC? And that's how it was coming through. Like, the knowledge was somehow being passed through through the use of a substance. Is the secret propaganda from machine elves in the marijuana dimension i would have got no <laughs> i'm just gonna go no on that one <laughs> or at least i certainly hope not gay <laughs> i can't believe in the opening show for this season we've used a gay soundbite <laughs> at least four or five times <laughs> it's just what what's wrong with it what's wrong with a soundbite why are you being so homophobic <laughs> We, we should have more of that. We need more. There is no homophobia there. We need more gay sound bites in 2023. <laughs> That's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Welcome back. Uh, welcome back, Barnacles. Time to tack on for another year. Like, suck on for another year <laughs> of free content. Just clinging on there for dear life. <laughs> Just wallet. Their wallets are sealed in some kind of quantum black hole never to be open each barnacle has this uh their wallet is in this potential state constantly <laughs> it's like their wallet is a schrodinger's cat of, <laughs> but it's always dead <laughs> they're always in this potential of could i pay for mu or could i not pay for mu that's the eternal barnacle 
It's time to stop being a barnacle and sign up for MU Plus in 2023. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. You know the drill. Sign up today. You get access to the extensions we do on these shows. Big one coming up in a moment. And of course, Plus members get an entirely exclusive show on Tuesdays. More than double the content when you sign up. Uh, sign up for ME Max and you get access to our entire back catalog as well. That's the best way to go through our 16 plus years or whatever it is of shows. They're Something all ridiculous. They're all in there. And of course, Plus members get a higher bitrate feed, better quality sound, a totally ad-free version of the show as well. Check it out today, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Huge stuff coming up in our extension. Aaron's going to be going into... Killer robots, death spheres, viruses and plagues from extraterrestrial entities, a whole heap of spiritual interactions, some of the wildest, craziest stuff to kick off our first plus extension for 2023. And some Linda Moulton Howe samples. Yeah, there, is a, there is a brief Linda Moulton Howe sample that will come up as well. Artificially intelligently treated... Linda Moulton Howe yeah, samples. Yeah, we talk about the podcast of 9000. And every the, the two clips I played you of Neville Goddard were the treated AI'd. with AI today. And I'm going to show you some of this uh, new audio stuff with AI after the break. It's going to blow your mind. And I'll explain why it will kill you in a few years. <laughs> That's coming up after this. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the new season. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week. your plus extension great to have you with us yeah i, I want to talk about this this ai stuff yeah this is intriguing because i think it's going to really ramp up in the next couple of years and the tools that are being made available now